Hello and welcome to Systematically. We're still doing our Apocalypse Editions. And today we have a, a real treat. Um, we have another person from my Marquette days. Uh, Josh Burns is with us. He's a, a professor in uh, Judaism and Christianity in Antiquity and, and so of Hebrew Bible and uh, uh, Jewish studies. Um, and we're glad to have him here Josh, will you tell us also a little bit about your uh, your relatively new gig at Marquette as well? Most definitely. So, in addition to the to the always exciting world of of studying the Hebrew Bible and teaching Jewish studies and those things, I'm also currently serving as uh, the associate dean for academic affairs in Marquette's Klingler College of Arts and Science, which is our liberal arts. And I imagine that uh, recently that's been an exciting job. Exciting, nerve-wracking to keep with the apocalyptic theme, I suppose. I mean, in our, in our situation, like many schools across the country, we are uh, rapidly moving to uh, online learning. Today is actually, uh, this is Monday, the 23rd of March. Uh, it's our, our D-Day, so to speak. This yeah. is the day when um, several hundred of our faculty members are supposed to be debuting their online versions of their in-person courses. And I'm just waiting for the ball out to see how that goes. Oh my, yeah. And are are do you have some sense of the strategies that people are using? Are people going asynchronous? Are they trying to do synchronous meetings? It's all over the place. I mean, I think for a lot of faculty members, particularly those who are not native to the uh, to the online environment or not not well um, accustomed to uh, communicating uh, in anything but in person classrooms. There's, there's a desire to do synchronous classes, but it's not really practical for us because we've got students all over the country and even in other parts of the world who cannot meet, so to speak, at the same time in a virtual online environment. Uh, and so this is something people realize pretty quickly. So many then said, well, my next resort is going to be, I'm going to just lecture and record it as a video or as an audio file. Well, that's great, except when we have 10,000 students all trying to uh, tap into our servers to access those videos and lengthy audio files. Uh, we we have fear that it's going to crash, and so um, oh, yeah. our administration, our center for teaching and learning, all the people who are uh, who know our capacities technically are have been urging people to come up with asynchronous learning strategies. Uh, but given that we've got upwards of seven hundred and fifty faculty members, it's really difficult for us um, to to enforce one type of learning uh, um, or even urge one type of learning when we have very little control over people working, <laughs> working from home. No, days. yeah, sure. And, and, uh, and my experience, certainly of myself as an academic, is most of us don't go into academia because we're, we're team players. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, we like we, to be alone with our books and do our thing. Yeah, we, we in academia are, are pros when it comes to social isolation. <laughs> uh, or not social distancing, I should That's say. Or, yeah. Isolation is, is, is maybe going too far. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not simply a matter of being team players. It's also um, finding out ways to deliver courses online that are conducive to the, uh, the subject matters for our lessons. I mean, we've got folks in our in our hard sciences departments who are racking their brains over how am I going to do a chemistry lab online? Yeah. Uh, but we've, we've got to do it. And so strategies uh, 
strategies have been made. People are going to be, our students, some of them are going to be doing experiments with household objects and let's just hope houses don't burn down. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the, the, that suddenly, suddenly very grateful to be in the humanities. That's, that's right. I mean, I think a lot of folks in the humanities uh, in the past have been averse to online learning because it takes away some of the intimacy, some of the online, some of the, uh, um, the relationship that happens when one person is sitting in a room and can, and can speak face to face to another person. But by the same token, uh, it makes, I think, for a much easier pivot when we don't have to deal with um, uh, hard substances and uh, we can actually. Uh, communicate primarily via written assignments. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, it, it made, it made my turning my ship and my courses much easier. Um, well, thanks. That's, that's helpful to have a look at that from, um, from, a, from above as it were. Uh, Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit in the trenches, you know, trying to, trying to keep a, a four-year-old and an almost three-year-old and a new baby all happy and, and stay married while, <laughs> while, while well, getting this thing going. Honestly, these days, I don't feel as if I'm above anyone. I'm in the trenches too. In addition yeah. to my teaching my own class and having to, having to adjust to this, I mean, we're all, on, we're all facing the, the, the same learning curve. And part of my role is to be supportive of our faculty members mm-hmm. and our students. And I just have to wait and see how individuals are doing before I can conceptualize how best to help them, how best to serve their needs. Yeah, a lot of that. A lot, a lot of, lot of waiting and seeing right now. That's right. Well, which returns us to our topic here uh, in the age of COVID nineteen. Uh, I wanted to have you on because I wanted to hear someone who knows quite a lot about the Hebrew Bible talk about uh, the idea of plagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have in in mind in particular, uh, or or at least maybe what comes first to mind are the the plagues in Exodus. Um, but there's 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 a number of references to the to plagues in the Hebrew Bible um, in various contexts and various sort of narrative situations, um, and so maybe maybe we can start we, we can start sort of quite general, and um, perhaps you can say a little something about where uh, where the notion of 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 a plague fits into ancient Israelite theology or or history uh, and then we can sure. zoom into some particular examples from there yeah well you know plagues uh as as we construct them have been part of human civilization since human civilization has been and it's kind of bracing that even today in the year 2020 we're still susceptible to these uh mass epidemics whether it's a health crisis uh, whether it's an environmental crisis, whether it's a weather crisis, a destructive hurricane or tsunami or something, uh, there's certain forces of nature that uh, human beings uh, have always been subjected to. And so several thousand years ago, when the Hebrew scriptures were written, the authors of these texts, they were aware that plagues of various kinds could happen, that they were an unfortunate part of life. And so um, they mobilized concept of, of the plague as a, as a kind of tool, or maybe we can even say a weapon for God to, to punish the insolent, to punish the wicked, uh, because mm. it was perceived back then, as it's perceived today by many, that uh, any plague uh, has to be an act of God, 
or an active a god or multiple gods, depending on what uh, system uh, of belief the ancients the ancients adhered to. And so they found theological significance in these uh, in, in these kind of catastrophes and these kind of natural disasters. And and to to your knowledge, do does the, the sort of theological significance given to this kind of disaster, to, to plagues of various kinds, ha- have a unique valence in Israelite religion, as, as opposed to, say, its neighbors or, or um, even other sort of perhaps later uh, ancient examples? Or, or are we dealing with a sort of a shared notion in, in the ancient Near East and, and the like? Well, I think it's fair to say that there was a shared notion that any kind of plague or natural disaster would have been attributable to a god. Um, but the Israelites had a, a very unique conceit that there was only one god, or at least um, one god who was more powerful than the other gods at an earlier stage in development of their theology. And so they had to reckon with what they considered the fact that a god who created the world and ultimately wants uh, wants the best for his subjects and wants his subjects to thrive and sometimes appear to turn on that uh, notion and punish people in, in mass, uh, mass strikes, so to speak, against humanity. So they had to reconcile the notion of a God who means well, a God who loves his, uh, loves his subjects, and also a God who um, is not averse to punishing his subjects uh, for for one reason or another. So one objection that my students bring quite often when we read, and maybe we can zoom in on, start to zoom in on Exodus a little bit here, but when we read the Exodus account, um, an objection my students often make is, well, but what about, what about all those innocent people, quote unquote, who have no, um, no part in the drama here, right? We have our, our, our two main figures. We have Pharaoh and we have Moses and, and, and Aaron. Um, and and they're players in this in this drama that's going on that we're reading about. But these plagues they afflict everybody, right? Everybody's got a house full of frogs or whatever it is. Um, and doesn't that seem unjust, right? So if we're going to talk about God punishing the wicked, and so uh, some notion of justice kind of coming into the frame there, doesn't that seem at least to their to their modern minds that seems terrifically unjust? Um, would, would that have been how you know an ancient Israelite authorship or readership of have thought about it? Would that have occurred to them, or is that a, a, a kind of uniquely modern way of, of looking at the narrative? Oh, I've got I've got two answers to that question. I think the, the most immediate answer would be an ancient Israelite reader or listener or hearer of this tale uh, likely would have exulted because these are, after all, the enemies, mm-hmm. uh, and so um, the the common folks, so to speak, the common Egyptians, the ones who who did not. Uh, drive the Hebrew slaves to build cities and so forth. Yeah, they, they seem to get a raw deal in this story, but by the same token, they don't actually appear much in this story. Mm-hmm. And so it's implied that everybody in Egypt is suffering these plagues. And it, it kind of is a modern conceit to think about, well, what about those people in the background where mm-hmm. the, the narrative itself only gives us the stories of the heroes and the villains. Now, so, so, so that's one answer. Second answer would be, um, can we imagine, should we assume that in a story that, that's, uh, that's, that follows the, the narrative plot points that we have, that, that there was nobody other than the Pharaoh 
who was cruel to the Hebrews in, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as if uh, one man owned all the slaves and did all of the, uh, did, did all of the, uh, the legwork, so to speak, in terms of making them, uh, making them do their labor, that sort of thing. I mean, we're introduced to a character who's uh, Potiphar, the, uh, mm. the chamberlain of the, uh, of the pharaoh. He had at least one slave, too, Joseph, in the story. And so, um, granted, it's, it's difficult to think of uh, a sort of national collective punishment as just, uh, but in societies, and maybe we can think of, you know, the early Americas as well, granted there were politicians and people who, uh, who were the leaders of their society, but a lot of people owned slaves and a lot of people abused um, slaves who even didn't own them. And so there's a certain sense of uh, um, um, collective guilt that I think is fair to impute to the background characters in the story. Might not uh, might not be completely fair in the, in the minds of uh, people who are interested in you know individualized justice and individualized uh, culpability in the in the contemporary frame of reference. But by the same token, they were probably not all innocent. Right. Sure. Um, so so let so taking that example, let's let's zoom in on the, the Exodus narrative a little bit. So some of the some of the plagues in that in that narrative are. Uh, seem disease-like, at least to, to modern eyes, boils and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the way the part of the way we think, or at least the way that they're categorized, is there's a there's a whole bunch of natural disasters that fit under uh, under that heading. Um, what what is the narrative or theological or rhetorical sort of function of uh, this variety of, of plagues that we see? in Exodus. Well, you know, why, why, why not just have the one, right? Why not skip to the end uh, and just have the death of the firstborn? Well, first of all, it wouldn't be much of a ratcheting up of narrative tension if there was only the one plague. It wouldn't be much of an opportunity for there to be a dialogue, give and take, where Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart gradually hardens or God, Pharaoh, God gradually hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, and there's there's a certain there's a certain narrative necessity to have these plagues if we're going to be thinking again about the background characters, how they are all suffering continually from one plague after another, and yet their leader simply refuses to budge and acknowledge there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it it sort of casts in relief the evilness of the pharaoh that this mm-hmm. wasn't sim- simply a matter of flicking a switch and saying okay well Israelites go free. It was a matter of this man seeing the suffering of his own people gradually over weeks, apparently, uh, you know, suffering from boils and locusts and wild animals and so forth, and still saying, nope, nope, not going to let them go. So, uh, so it serves a narrative purpose in uh, enhancing the, the corruption, enhancing, enhancing the, uh, uh, I already used the word evil, but I don't have a good synonym right now. <laughs> that one will do. Enhancing yeah. the, the evil of the pharaoh and the come up that he gets later on in the story mm-hmm. uh, but but to the to another part of your question of why these particular plagues why the variety of plagues that mobilize all these different forces of nature it's 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 consistent with a pentateuchal image of god particularly an image that uh, gets projected in the beginning of the book of genesis that god is the master of all creation and if you think about other ancient Near Eastern civilizations who had one God in charge of the storms and another God in charge of the grains of the earth, that sort of thing, 
um, think that or, or to conceive of a God who is in control of everything, this is a tremendous display of his power. I control the water. I control the frogs. I control the insects and the wild animals. And there's even unnatural uh, um, control going on in terms of fire in ice coming down and hailstones and, and darkness overtaking, uh, overtaking the, uh, the Egyptian society. And so uh, these would be sort of supernatural occurrences that have to do with aspects of God's creation, uh, but are over and above uh, what, uh, what one would observe in a, in a normal uh, uh, n normal sense of what uh, nature is capable of of doing on its own, so to speak. And in some sense, then you you might you might draw a parallel with the the, the contests between Moses and Pharaoh's uh, you know sorcerers or or whatever they are, um, mm -hmm. right? Where where you know <laughs> anything you can do, I can do better. Um, right. So, uh, so then. But, but as, I, as I mentioned before, this isn't the, the only place where, where we see plagues of this kind. Um, it's, it's, and, a, it's a dramatic instance, but no, it's not the only place. And, and, quite, and, and a famous one, right? Mm -hmm. You've got Charlton Heston and all that. Right. Um, who can forget? So, but but I, I, the other instance that I sometimes, that I sometimes teach, um, in part because it's fun to see how students react, is I, I like to teach the, the narrative of Abram and Sarai going into Egypt, um, fleeing out of out of Canaan into Egypt, and uh, sort of as as your colleague Sharon Pace taught me, sort of running running the Israelite outsider scam uh, on on Pharaoh uh, and getting into his household. And um, the the if you don't know the story, the the ruse is is that they're going to lie about their relationship and not say that they're husband and wife, but rather that they are brother and sister. Uh, yeah, that that old con. That old con. Um, and if, uh, and, and Pharaoh takes note, uh, Sarai apparently is, is quite good looking and takes note and presumably pays a, a handsome dowry for her hand in marriage. She goes into Pharaoh's house and also in, uh, presumably into Pharaoh's bed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you actually, when we were talking before the show, you pulled up the passage there. Could, could you read the, the, that reference there to when Pharaoh starts to get wise that maybe all isn't as it seems? Sure. This is in Genesis chapter 12, and I'm reading from the um, New Jewish Publication Society translation. Uh, so after Abram enters Egypt, this is in 1217, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with mighty plagues on account of Sarai, the wife of Abram. Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her. And be gone. So, so the pharaoh, in other words, um, observes these plagues going on. And this particular pharaoh, I guess, is a bit shrewder or wiser <laughs> than the pharaoh in Exodus. Qu quicker on uh, the uptake. Yeah, quicker on the uptake. He realizes that um, something has gone wrong, that he has committed some kind of sin to, uh, uh, to offend whichever god or gods or goddesses he believes in. And uh, so he gets wise and sends Abram and Sarai on their way. There are so many things about this narrative that I find fascinating. Um, I mean, one is what one thing that that students, particularly students who who like me, come from a kind of Bible reading evangelical background, mm -hmm. um, the absence of condemnation for their lie 
is shocking. And the and really the sort of implied uh, the the implied sort of approval in the narrative of this move they've made uh, scandalize, scandalizes certain of my students. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have a hard time with that. Uh, so I mean that part's sort of uh, facially interesting, but but also I, I try to nudge them to a deeper level. Is so in the narrative. If we're thinking of plagues in, in this theological sense of, of an act of punishment on behalf of either God or gods, um, you know, who, who implicitly is portrayed as the agent of the plagues that tip off Pharaoh for what's going on here? Well, to, to your first point, um, the, the, the constant lying of Abraham uh, actually bothered early interpreters. and. One particularly um, interesting text uh, that was recovered from Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's called today the Genesis Apocryphon, actually spins the story in a slightly different way. Oh, disturbed, uh, yeah, disturbed apparently that uh, Abraham would lie and not be chastised by God for that. It actually foists on to Sarai. So Sarai is the one who does the law. I don't know <laughs> if that's actually a better solution, something of a misogynistic solution, yeah, but boy. at least it takes the blame off of Abraham. But yes, this this did bother early interpreters. Yeah, uh, it's, it's that's actually a common theme in early Jewish and Christian literature to try to ameliorate the sins of the patriarch, even if they are mostly minor sins. Yeah, sure. But as to the question of who is behind this, so in the Genesis account, it says the Lord uses uh, the, the four letter tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so it's it's the God of the Jews or the God of the Hebrews or Israelites. They don't even have really a name at this point. The God of Abraham, uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, for for argument's sake. But notably, when the Pharaoh acknowledges, hmm, I, or seems to acknowledge, I must have done something wrong, he doesn't recognize Abram's God. He doesn't actually, in this account, cite any gods, but he draws that conclusion nonetheless. So it seems that he has a kind of religious sensibility about this, even. If, even if the author of the of the of the particular account that we have was not quite sure how to express uh, the, the Pharaoh's own theology, yeah, no, I find that I find that part really really fascinating. Um, so, and so, and so, in that case, you have a kind of one to one relationship, right? It's yeah. it's it's not the kind of uh, global or, or global's overstating it, but but the the broad application of divine punishment to a society in a moment of crisis. Um, but here we have like one person's misbehavior. Um, well, the, and the, the other thing that my students are often uh, puzzled by is that there's no, um, what do the lawyers say? There's no uh, mens rea, right? Mm-hmm. There's the, the, the Pharaoh doesn't know. That's, that's the whole reason this is happening. And once he does know, he sends them packing. Uh, and so the idea, there's a kind of, like, I mean, this is a terrible anachronism, but there's a kind of consequentialism to the, mor- to the morality um, and and the, the punitiveness of the plague there too. Um, yeah, and if we're to extend that observation to the, to, the, to the situation in Exodus, as we discussed before, there, there are consequences, and presumably the, the Pharaoh in Exodus can see these consequences, or at least hear these consequences from the shielded position of his own royal court, uh, and yet he doesn't act, which is yeah. to say one plague after another, and it's... And, it doesn't hit home for him, so to speak, until the plague of the firstborn. Uh, it's not explicit in Exodus why this one, why, why that particular plague irks him so much, but presumably 
he had firstborns in his household, maybe even his own firstborn child. The early uh, rabbinic sages speculated that Pharaoh himself was a firstborn and feared that he was going to die. And so it took something as violent as people literally dropping dead and something as obvious as people dropping dead uh, in, in, in his own environment to realize hmm, I am not immune uh, to, to, uh, to this plague and there, there are consequences to my, in this case, non-action of not releasing the Hebrews. I, I've wondered too, and I don't know enough about it to, to, to know if this hypothesis is anything more than a bright idea, but I, I've wondered too about um, if the, the, notion, the, the notion of, um, oh, how to describe it, that, that, that author, the, the way that authority would be handed on generation to generation would have been uh, patrilinear from firstborn to firstborn. Would that have been sort of what was going on in that? world too or do we just not know it, it would have been it would have been um dynasties didn't always work out that way say a firstborn uh was um unfit for kingship a firstborn was a, a female um mm -hmm. you know both both would have been disqualifying factors in in, in certain certain aspects of uh or certain areas and times in ancient near eastern and in egyptian societies but even if even if we're not thinking about you know direct patrimony if, if if the next person in line for the throne happens to die, they'll go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, and I think this might have some relevance to what we're seeing today, it's very disturbing to see potential um, see friends, allies, and, and just members of our own community falling ill, and you know, God forbid, but, but some people have, have been dying from our recent coronavirus uh, um, pandemic, and um, even if it's not a matter of, say, disrupting, you know, if, if the CEO of company X, Y, or Z happens to pass away, there will be someone to replace that person. Nevertheless, it's shocking that person yeah. were, to, were, to, were to succumb to a disease. Yeah, certainly. Let's, you mentioned before we started recording um, a sort of another valence uh, of, of this question of bringing our contemporary topic to the Hebrew Bible that, that you wanted to, to discuss. Uh, and that is what what we commonly today call leprosy. Mm -hmm. um, we, so tell tell me about um, what 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 passages you have in mind, and and what uh, what what you see the connection being. So, because I think about the Bible a lot, it's my job. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how how the authors of the Hebrew Scriptures understood disease and understood pandemic in ways that might relate to. Uh, to our responses today, and of course, I think of plague. And if you watch the news or read papers, you know this is this is a word that's been bandied about. I believe President Trump recently used the term plague, um, but this is not a plague that we're undergoing now in the sense, in, in the biblical sense, in that this is not a sort of arbitrary decision, or at least uh, it can be construed as a decision uh, to to punish people. It's not as if all the people who are suffering now from the coronavirus. Uh, we can all count them as sinners in the way that, say, the author of Exodus presumed uh, be the case for all the Egyptians, or, or mm -hmm. certainly the Pharaoh and his household. So I don't, I don't like to think of what we're undergoing now as plague. It reminds me, um, in a very unsavory way, about how people were talking about the AIDS epidemic uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, calling it plague, and sometimes the gay plague or the gay cancer, as if 
this was somehow uh, this was somehow a punishment from God for people who were living uh, alternative lifestyles or lifestyles they thought not sanctioned by God. Mm-hmm. So I don't like thinking of what we're going through now in those kind of terms. However, my mind goes toward the toward the legislation in the book of Leviticus of of uh, the disease that's typically translated today as leprosy. Now, the disease uh, in Hebrew, in Hebrew scriptures, is called sara'at. Uh, it has nothing to do, apparently, with the disease today called leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, which is a terrible disease that uh, wastes away flesh. In the Hebrew scriptures, this, um, this disease is depicted as something that we can't quite get our, our, our thumb on what particularly the pathology is, but it's a disease that people can recover from. And so it's, I think, more like uh, the, the coronavirus than, than um, certain more deadly diseases uh, that one can think of. And so in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, there's, there's extensive legislation about how to deal with this, uh, this malady. And the malady expresses itself um, in uh, the discoloration, what's described as the discoloration of persons of people's skin, their hair, sometimes losing their hair. Uh, so the way that it's described, it's all external expression of, of uh, disease or, or person's appearance changes. Um, the, the writers, the authors of the Hebrew scriptures, in this case, uh, the, these chapters are typically ascribed to uh, priestly authors in the 5th century BCE or maybe a little earlier. Uh, they were not physicians, they were not medical doctors, and so they were cognizant of what can happen to an individual in terms of suffering from, from some kind of externally visible disease, but um, they weren't 100% sure about how to treat it. Nevertheless, I think it's significant that the number one uh, approach to treating this disease was sending people away, which mm. is to say quarantining them, sending them out of what's called in, in Leviticus narrative, the camp you know, the encampments that the Israelites were in in the wilderness, mm-hmm. social distancing. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, and, and suddenly we have some practical, uh, some, some contemporary and practical relevance here. Um, and, yeah. and the, so, so, so right now, right, we're being asked by experts, by people with sort of social authority to take certain measures, including social distancing or if you're sick, isolation and so on. If you're exposed, quarantine, um, and those are those are so far for most of us largely voluntary. Though there are a number of legal authorities that the state has um, quite uh, quite expansive legal authorities, in fact, to quarantine um, and to isolate uh, people, and and also to you know do things like lay hold of industry to create supplies and things like that. Um, if you're, if you're, this is a total aside, but if you're interested in those kinds of legal questions uh, about our contemporary circumstances, mm-hmm. the UT professor, uh, Steve Vladek, uh, in the, in the law school here at UT did a podcast with Benjamin Wittes at Lawfare Podcast, um, going through in a kind of slow, careful way, the various, uh, legal, uh, legal powers available. Uh, in a time of of pandemic, so if if you're out there and that's a thing that interests you, I I could tell you which episode, but I don't remember. But if you Google it, Steve Laddick, Ben Wittes, Lawfare, you'll find mm-hmm. it. Um, so what did the um the the being sent out of the camp 
is this a matter of social pressure? Is this a kind of formalized legal thing? Um, what what is the what is the sort of social structure described for how this is working? Well, it's difficult. It's it's difficult to conceive exactly in what kind of sort of civil judiciary this these legis these laws would be applied. Uh, but there does seem to be a kind of sense of mutuality in that these are laws that are maybe not legally enforceable, but they're good ideas. Mm. So, for instance, um, you know, I think a great passage that stands out is in Leviticus 13, starting in verse 45. The person with a leprous affliction, his clothes shall be rent, his head shall be left bare, and he shall cover his upper lip and call out, unclean, unclean. So in other words, what's required of this person is not only to leave the camp, uh, but to make sure that anybody who might happen to come close to this person knows that he or she has this contagion uh, by, by physically um, indicating that uh, I'm a sick person. Enabling what, enabling what epidemiolo- epidemiologists would now call surveillance, essentially, right? Yeah, and you bet. Enabling the community to know who's sick. Exactly. And so this would have been a practical piece of legislation, um, whether it was whether it would have been binding. Certainly one could uh, one could imagine other people, you know, seeing a person with this contagious affliction saying this would be a good idea. You don't want to get other people sick. Therefore, advertise yourself, at least for the time being, as unclean so that if if you see somebody approaching you, maybe you want to signal to them, uh, you'd better stay away. And and does do these passages have you know we've talked about plague in a kind of moralizing valence? Do these passages have that quality to them? Uh, is, is there some notion of um, of sort some sort of either this is punitive or of one being somehow culpable in in having the illness? Well, yes and no. So when the legislation on on the lepers or tarah in Hebrew is introduced in Leviticus thirteen. It starts out simply as the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling, a rash, a discoloration, and it develops a scaly affliction on, this, on the skin in his body, et cetera, et cetera. There's no, inti- there's no intimation there that this person has done something wrong. Mm-hmm. So throughout the first part of the laws, um, it's simply here's how to deal with this situation. First, uh, go into quarantine. Then... Um, after several days, you know, have a priest inspect you, see if, or inspect the person afflicted, see if the affliction has gotten better, if it has spread, and contingencies from there. But then in the 14th chapter of Leviticus, the next chapter, um, the law continues to dictate that once a person has recovered, you know, if, if a person should recover from this disease, once a person has re- recovered and is able to re-enter the camp of Israel, they should bring a guilt offering a sin offering, in other words, mm-hmm. something to indicate that um, uh, perhaps a sin has been committed. So ter- interpreters typically see this as a kind of moral hedging, where it's not clear that the person has done something wrong to have suffered this affliction. It's not clear that God is punishing this person because it happens to everyone. And in fact, it happens, according to the Levitical legislation, to inanimate objects like clothing, and mm-hmm. houses where you know we have dry rock or, or mold. Certainly, a house cannot sin. A physical structure cannot sin. But for a person, maybe they did. Maybe they're guilty of something. And so, it's a good idea 
after they're healthy again and after they're able to go back into uh, back into their communities uh, to do some kind of penance uh, just in case. Yeah. And the, the, the amateur social psychologist in me would want to speculate, too, that I, I wonder if it serves some kind of um, sort of social rebinding function, too, right, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to have some kind of formal act that you do on your way back in, you know, reintegrating into the camp. Um, right. And so in, in the ancient Jewish society for which this was, for which these laws were written, uh, the priests, uh, the priests of, of God, the cult of Yahweh, uh, they, they regulated uh, the coming and going of these people with these, with these skin afflictions. Uh, number one, by checking them out physically to, to see, you know, whether a person is still suffering from this disease but also in enabling this sacrifice. It's a sense, say, as a signal to others, this person uh, not only appears to be clean, but uh, is sanctioned by God because they've partaken of these, uh, these rituals and therefore there should be no stigma. Now, I, I think today about people who are suffering from the coronavirus disease, how they'll be reported in the news or on you know, local social media, uh, but their names won't be reported. Because what if, you know, hopefully this person recovers and is healthy again, uh, to have their name out there uh, as this person was recently carrying this disease, this could be a tremendous social stigma for them. Yeah. And so we, in, in terms of reporting uh, people who have this disease, we are, we are sensitized enough to know that it's not a good idea to add insult to injury by divulging in the press who had this disease. Now, unfortunately, yeah. Some people have been dying and their names have been released, but it's too late for them uh, mm-hmm. to uh, suffer from social stigma. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and I think too, I think of it too in terms of institutions, you know, businesses certainly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but others as well. Well, certainly businesses. I mean, if you're, if you're a business owner, let's say you're a restaurant owner and you have the disease, um, you might be healthy again, but uh, you don't want people to be known. Uh, there's somebody in this, in this local establishment who had, who had the disease recently, I'm not going to patronize that. That would be terrible. Terrible times. Well, uh, thank you so much. That's, that's terrifically interesting. Um, Is there, is there anything that uh, I should have asked you about that? I didn't anything we, we, we should definitely mention before we sign off. Well, I don't know about definitely. I had another biblical passage in mind. It's a a brief one. Uh, but it appears in the book of Numbers in chapter 21 later on in the wilderness narrative. So um, the, the plagues of the past are, are uh, distant memories by this point. Um, but in, in an interesting little instance, the Israelites are made to suffer um, a little plague, a miniature plague of their own. Hmm. So this is in chapter 21 of Numbers again. Uh, the Israelites are bopping through the wilderness as, as they do, and as, as is their habit, they decide to speak against God and against Moses. They, they, they haven't learned their lesson yet. Always a good verse, plan. Exactly. Verse 5 in chapter 21. They say, Why did you make us leave Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread and no water, and we have come to loathe this miserable food, referring to the manna, I suppose, that's been falling from heaven. So yes, they've forgotten how terrible it was in Egypt. Why did you make us leave? And so the Lord sent flying serpents against the people, and they bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. 
I can't imagine what flying <laughs> serpents is talking about. Sometimes I see this translator or interpreted as dragonflies, which is something that is kind of like a serpent, but yeah. whatever. Some kind of pestilence. Um, they, they bite the people and, and many of them die, not all of them. This, this is not a good situation, another oh. localized plague. Yeah, my goodness. So the people came to Moses and said, we sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with us, the Lord, to take away the servants from us. They get wise pretty quickly. And so Moses intercedes for the people. He makes this staff with a brazen serpent or a copper serpent mounted on a staff. And anybody who's bitten by uh, one of the flying serpents would look at this, this staff and recover. So it's a, it's a famous symbol yeah. of uh, the, the, the brazen serpent in terms of... Uh, in terms of biblical memory, but it's, it's a very simple lesson that, um, number one, God uh, can make the plagues against his chosen people as well as against the Egyptians. Yeah, so this is another, uh, it's localized, it's short, but it's a plague nonetheless. Yeah. It's an infestation that's causing people to die, and they immediately learn the simple lesson, uh, don't slander God. <laughs> Good, good so, advice. So the plague, the plague cuts both ways. It's not yeah. as if the, the authors of the biblical text thought of plagues only as a scourge against the enemies of Israel. It could also be a scourge against the Israelites themselves mm. if they misbehave. Terrific. Well, that's great. Uh, that's, we'll, we'll cap it right there. Well, Josh, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. I know you're busy and there's all kinds of stuff going on uh, at, at Marquette, like so many universities, but we really appreciate it. I, I think our audience will find this really fascinating. Well, I hope your audience stays healthy and stays positive during these times. And you, right. of course, too. <laughs> Doing my best. Making podcasts, trying to feel helpful. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, as always, if you want to tweet at us, you can find us at SystematicPod on Twitter. You can send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to help us out with the little bit of overhead we have on the show, you can donate at uh, patreon.com slash systematically. We appreciate the help with that. Um, and, you know, wash your hands, stay six feet away from each other, quit touching your face, and be responsible. <laughs>